Hey, this is Carl Anderson. I'm the senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church, and this is our sermons podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this message fills your soul with hope, helps you see the beauty of Jesus, and allows you to feel the love that God has for you. If you want more information about experiencing God's love for you personally, head over to sierrabible.org and contact one of our pastors. I love you, and I'm praying for you. If you don't know me, my name is Carl, one of the pastors here. If you brought your Bible, please open with me to the passage that was just read, Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be working through verses 1 through 6 this morning. Uh, Life is full of glorious moments. If you could reflect back upon your life, what were some of the most glorious moments, some of the the pinnacle high-top moments? moments of your life. Maybe it was on your wedding day when you pledged your life to your spouse and your spouse pledged their life to you. Maybe it was the birth of your first child. I mean, some of you have the pinnacle of the second child, but most of you have the pinnacle of the first child, being a firstborn. I know this from experience. Uh, maybe potentially it may be uh, some uh, accomplishment that you had in your career or a graduation for that, that you uh, worked significantly hard for and you had a glorious moment. Well, in today's world, uh, it, the, these glorious moments of life, they're, they're not simply uh, a graduation that we remember and cherish, maybe have a picture of, or a wedding that we, uh, that, we, that we have a video of, but these glorious moments sometimes get captured in real time, and now we post them to social media, and the whole world gets to see our 15 minutes of fame. So uh, a couple of years ago at Yosemite National Park, there was a man who just goes by uh, Yosemite Bear Man. And uh, he n- looked out his window one morning and in the, on the horizon was this beautiful, full-arched, double rainbow that went across the sky. And for three and a half minutes, he had his camcorder videotaping this double rainbow, just exclaiming, oh my goodness, oh, this is so glorious. Oh, I can't believe that I'm here at this particular moment. What? And he was 100% into it, 100% serious. He even begins to cry and say, oh, what does this mean? What does this mean? The three and a half minute video was posted to YouTube and it has got millions and millions of views for Yosemite Bear Man. Uh, How many of you remember a couple of years ago, Chewbacca Mom? Anybody remember Facebook Live, Chewbacca Mom? I can't, I don't know, I I was like, okay, I wrote this, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get through it. Chewbacca Chewbacca Mom goes to Target and she says, it's my birthday. I am going to get something that I want. And I'm sure I'll let my kids play with it, but this one is all mine. She goes in and she buys a mask of Chewbacca and she's on Facebook Live, so streaming for the whole world to see. And she's like, I just bought this Chewbacca, this, this Chewbacca mask and it's only for me and I am going to enjoy it. I'm going to open it up. I'm going to show you all on Facebook Live. I am just so happy that I have this mask here. It just looks so much fun. It looks so great. She starts to giggle a little bit. She opens it and puts it on and goes, what? that was the worst Chewbacca. 
Chewbacca impression ever. But it says that it has the Chewbacca voice and she cannot handle it. She loses 100% control. She laughs so hard at herself filming on Facebook Live, this Chewbacca mom. It garnered 177 million views on Facebook Live. A mom just taking simple joy in a gift that she gave to herself on her birthday. Uh, potentially my, my favorite one, uh, comes from a, uh, a high school senior at his talent show, uh, enters onto the stage with this loud, suspenseful music. The crowd is kind of cheering, but they're wondering what he's doing. He like strolls back and, strolls back and forth on the stage as the, the music is playing. It's, it's going a little bit louder. It's, it's building up to a climax. It goes a climax, and then it drops. No more music. He takes out a water bottle, flips it, it lands perfectly on uh, it lands perfectly on the table that's on the platform, and the entire gym goes crazy. Ah! Just it goes absolutely nuts. And uh, that senior, because they took a video of this whole thing happening, posted it to posted it to YouTube, garnered over hundreds of millions of views just from this high school senior flipping a water bottle at a talent show. Even before, even before the internet provided for our 15 minutes of fame to be viewed by millions and millions of people, there is no getting around the truth that you and I, human beings, we are designed intentionally for glory. As we saw last week in Hebrews, Jesus brings many sons and daughters to glory with him in the presence of God, but he does so through suffering, suffering of his cross. But this, we saw last week, is good news for us, that Jesus promotes sons and daughters to glory via his suffering. This is good news for you and for me, because that means that Jesus Christ himself, the author and the perfecter of our faith, he can identify with all of his people in their deepest moments of pain and suffering. He is, as we saw last week, a good, a merciful and faithful high priest over the household of God. That was the exposition that we saw last week to conclude chapter 2. Now the author is going to move into one exhortation that is grounded in one truth that has two applications in verses 1 through 6. The author to the Hebrews desires to communicate that, that Jesus, in the midst of this, that Jesus is more glorious than even Moses. And so we should, as his people, consider Jesus' faithfulness intently. At the beginning of chapter 2, we saw uh, that the author to the Hebrews gave an exhortation to the, his listeners, a strong warning to the readers of this level, uh, of this letter. We must pay much closer attention to the message that we have heard. This was an exhortation that was rooted in what he had explained about who Jesus reveals God to be in chapter 1. Then for the remainder of chapter 2, after, as we heard these last two weeks, the author set the stage for this 
next exhortation that will begin at the beginning of chapter 3 and be sustained with a number of exhortations moving forward throughout chapter 3 and chapter 4. The author, as we saw last week, the, the author leans into his understanding and our understanding that, that Jesus isn't some detached God that is out there in the sky ruling and reigning apart from an understanding of the human predicament. He's not simply sitting high and mighty, disengaged from the plight of his people. He is a king. He is majestic. He is enthroned in glory. But his promotion to glory came through a full understanding of human suffering. He bled and died in solidarity with his people. And that's why the author of the Hebrews in chapter 2 can say he's a faithful and merciful high priest. And he's able to help people in their time of need and bring them with him to glory one day. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, he references everything that he has just stated that I have just summarized for you in chapters 1 and chapters 2 and comes to this command as his conclusion. Therefore, therefore, holy brothers... Remember, he had just communicated in chapter 2 that those who are sanctified and the one who sanctifies have one source, the suffering of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Therefore, holy brothers, sanctified brothers who have been sanctified, set apart through the cross of Jesus Christ. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, the one who from heaven calls you to himself through his own sacrifice, you who share in a heavenly calling until that day when you are in heaven, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Consider everything about Jesus that I have just explained, the author to the Hebrews is saying. Consider his position in glory where he rules and reigns right now. Consider that that position was paid for by his suffering. Consider how he lived while he was here on earth. Consider the the humble posture that he took to serve his people and humble himself. Think carefully about these things. Dwell on them. Meditate on everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did. And as soon as you think that you have done enough to meditate on the person and the work of Christ, as soon as you think I've considered him sufficiently, keep going. Continue to consider Jesus. The author commands his audience. And then the author specifically finishes this command with, the two roles of Jesus' ministry, two things that he wants them to consider. Jesus is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. The apostle simply means someone who is sent by God on a mission. The high priest has been explicitly mentioned already in chapter 2 with regard to his suffering, and this will be explained in much further detail in the rema- throughout the remainder of the book. But what the author is trying to communicate and exhort the people, consider Jesus, the apostle, the one sent by God, and the high priest, the one who suffers on behalf of his people to bring them 
to God. Consider him deeply. This understanding of Jesus as apostle and high priest shapes the Christian confession of faith that has remained unchanged for 2,000 years. Every Christian at every church that has graced planet Earth for these last 2,000 years are united in the belief that Jesus was sent from God to suffer for his people and bring them to glory. The Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest known systematic statements of the Christian faith, says this about Jesus as apostle. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. In other words, he was sent. He was sent by God, and this was the means that he did it. The Creed then goes about talking about his suffering as high priest. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And then the creed also says that he was promoted to glory, to the highest position of glory. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. All Christians of all times have believed this truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our confession that we are to continually consider our apostle and our high priest. I find it humorous sometimes to think about, to consider the uh, beliefs of children at times. Uh, Maybe even go back in your own life and think about the things that you believed when you were a kid, maybe if you were like me. Um, I don't know how sincere or genuine this belief was, but it sure was propagated amongst myself and my friends at a certain time. Um, Maybe you you know this doctrinal statement. Maybe you said it. Um, uh, Stepping on a crack will break your mother's back, right? It's not just simply an exhortation, don't step on a crack or you'll break your mother's back. It's a, it's a truth statement. It's a, it's, a, it's a summer, it's a confession. Stepping on a crack will break your mother's back. Um, or how many of you have held this belief? Um, if you aren't careful when you're draining the bathtub, you could get sucked right down the drain. See, yeah. Some, some of you are right there in, in, the, in the same aspect. Oh, um, how many of you, I, 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 don't, I did not believe this one. I, I must say I was, I was not a believer in this one, but I, I do know it's, it's out there for many children. Um, have the genuine belief that if you pull the blankets over your head, you are protected from everything. <laughs> It grants you immunity from anything that the rest of the world has to offer. In fact, I think, I think Jacqueline didn't get COVID because she just had her head over her blanket, the blanket over her head the whole time. Oh, and probably the most popular one. You need to be careful inside your household because at any moment, at any time of the day, or at any time of the night, without any warning, the floor might become lava. And the only way to protect yourself from the floor becoming lava is the obvious, jump on the couch. But as you matured, as you considered these beliefs and realized, you know what, some of these beliefs are quite unfounded. Stepping on a crack is not going to break my mother's back. No matter how powerful a drain is, it's not going to suck my entire body down the drain. 
Yes, and playing the floor is lava, it's a fun game, especially when you weigh 30 to 60 pounds. But the chances of a volcano sending lava through your house uh, in which the floor actually would become lava is very, very low. And if that were to happen, brothers and sisters, a couch is not going to save you. (laughs) And then could you imagine you're on a first date with someone that you're interested in and you're going on a leisurely stroll through a nice city in downtown, you're holding hands potentially for the first time and you're walking with this uh, love interest of yours and all of the sudden the person like jumps and pulls you over and you're like, what did you just do? Oh, I just saved my mother's back. It's silly. But the truth is, what we believe shapes how we live. Incorrect belief about Jesus will lead to ungodly living. The author of the Hebrews commands Christians to consider Jesus not simply as a theological exercise, though it is a theological exercise. He commands them to consider Jesus because he desires them to live like him. This is why in our church, we do not play around with theology. We don't treat theology like children's fairy tales. We consider Jesus carefully as the high priest and the apostle of our confession. We want to understand everything that that means for us because it's going to compel us to live like him. The confession that Jesus is Lord, to say that and understand what that means, has been paid for by Jesus' own blood. And it's been testified to by millions of Christians throughout the centuries who they themselves have given their life for the veracity of its claims. You can't make a confession without understanding its value. That is why pastorally I take theology very very seriously. Now I'll say this because it's in the text and we're leading into a special business meeting later here today and I don't want to waste everybody's time in the special business meeting today and I hope we can just affirm the direction that God is leading uh, as a church and then just go on from there. But I will take a moment here to explain a few things. After the service today, we will either affirm or deny the revision of our statement of faith to remove the term premillennial from Article 9 of our statement of faith. This is a large and substantial change that has significant implications for our church long term. No one is trying to sneak this change in. I've labored over the course of the last five years to explain and over-explain the implications of this through my preaching and writing and curating of classes to understand what is at stake in this and what is not at stake. If you want to read the summary in detail, I sent out a three-page letter just a few weeks ago, and then there was a nine-page appendix to that that comes from our Association of Churches, the EFCA, on why this change is being made, this revision is being made. I came to Sierra Bible Church five years ago knowing that this was the direction of the denomination and fully supportive of it. I grew up in this denomination. I was in the center of these, all of these theological discussions while I was in seminary. And I enthusiastically support the change. 
The change will permit those who hold differing views of eschatology, that is, amillennial or postmillennial, to have full fellowship within the church and even to teach within our church. I enthusiastically support this because my understanding of eschatology is the, is the label historic premillennialism. And my view of historic premillennialism has only been sharpened and edified as I interact with those who hold the authority of Scripture and disagree with me on this point. I'm sharpened by classic dispensational teachers that highlight the difference between Israel and the church because in some areas of the Scriptures, I see there is a difference in the discontinuity that is present in the text. I'm also sharpened when I hear Amillennial teachers emphasize the work of God through the reign of Jesus Christ that is present now in the church because when I look at the text, I see the glorious rule of Jesus at the Father's right hand present there in the text. Now, if you want to say, oh, well, Carl, that makes you wishy-washy. That makes you half this way, half that way. Let me say this clearly. I firmly believe that dispensational premillennialism is incorrect view of eschatology. I firmly believe that amillennial and postmillennial theology is incorrect and imprecise. You know what that means? That means I have conviction. But dispensational, amillennial, and postmillennial teachers who are centered on the gospel, brothers and sisters, they are my brothers in Christ, and I love them. And they're not my enemies. And if retaining premillennialism in our statement of faith is so important that this church cannot, that we as a church, we cannot welcome brothers and sisters who hold different eschatological positions on the millennium other than dispensational premillennialism, then as a pastor tasked with preaching and teaching this church, I'm never going to be able to satisfy the needs that this church would require. And if that were the case, this church would be much better served by another pastor who would hold only to a dispensational premillennialism view. So, the, the affirmation of the statement of faith this af after the service, it's a big one. But it's not something that we're just throwing in there willy-nilly. It's not without consequence. And if the church says, you know what, we love dispensational premillennialism, that's the only thing we want to hear, that's the only thing we're going to be allowed to teach in the church, I'm not going to take that personally. It's a, it's a wonderful view of Scripture. But I love you enough to ensure that you're pastored by someone who's able to affirm those convictions if those are the only ones that you see in line with Scripture. Now, I'm saying these things because of what the text says about caring about our confession of faith as a church. Brothers and sisters, long-term, I desire Sierra Bible Church to be the strongest and most robust gospel-centered church in all of northern Nevada without apology. I understood that when I took this call and I received this call to, to serve this particular church, that the vision that I had was going to take decades to fulfill. And I've gotten more gray hair attempting to fulfill it. But everything that Christ commands his church to do that lasts, for, that lasts for longer than one particular person demands patient endurance and faithfulness, which commands us to do what this text tells us, to consider Jesus, to patiently endure. 
And we, as a church, we can't cultivate a theologically robust, gospel-centered culture within the church if we make enemies out of believers who God calls friends. So we will continue to consider Jesus and everything that he is for us. In particular, we're going to consider his faithfulness, as we see in verses 2 through 6. His faithfulness that empowers us to hold fast to our confidence and boast in our hope. The other of Hebrews wants to, to highlight that Christ's faithfulness and, the, and use Christ's faithfulness to empower his listeners' perseverance. Verse 2, Jesus who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. So he wants to take their understanding of Moses, an esteemed leader within Judaism, and say, just as Moses was faithful, so also was Jesus faithful. He's equating the faithfulness of Moses to accomplish the task that was set before Moses, and Jesus, the one who was assigned a task to, to accomplish the task that was set before Jesus and equating they both were faithful in what God had appointed them to do. But just so you don't think that equating Moses' faithfulness and equating Jesus' faithfulness means they are, this, are worthy of the same honor, he then explains in verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as a builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. The author of the Hebrews is saying, Moses was great as a janitor in the house. He served faithfully as a janitor. But Jesus... Jesus has the ownership rights over the house. Jesus is worthy of design. He's, he, he was the architect and the builder of the house, not simply a servant inside of the house. And therefore, Jesus himself is on an entirely different plane, worthy of so much more glory than Moses. Verse 5, he makes this explicit. Now, Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. This is a... Quotation from Numbers chapter 12, verse 17, to testify to all of the things, to testify to all of the things that, that were to be spoken later. Verse 5 or verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Over his house as a son. Jesus has ownership rights over the house. Moses simply served within the house. But notice, there's one house. It's God's house. But what exactly is this house? He doesn't leave us hanging. He continues in verse 6. And we are his house. I think the clearest reading of this particular text, we are his house, is a reference to believers at all times. That includes Moses and Abraham and Enoch and Noah and all those who would come after Christ to believe in Christ. We are his house. Believers of all time are the household of God. And we are his house 
But what's the mark of those who are faithful? Or those, I almost gave it away. What is the mark of a believer of all time? Is it simply one who was born into a Christian family or born into the nation of Israel under the old covenant? Is it one who, who simply showed up at temple and recited Torah? Was it one who, who simply was able to recite the Christian creeds coming in later centuries? Now, the mark of all true believers at all times is then given for us at the end of verse 6. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Holding fast our confidence. Our, our confidence is rooted not in our own work, but in God who raises the dead. We boast not in our good works for our moments of glory. We boast in our hope that one day, like Christ, we will be raised from the dead. That boasting and confidence grants the believer perseverance until the end. And that is the mark of every true believer is one who perseveres until the end. So what do we do with all this? How do we put it all together and apply it to our life? Well, the text gives us two applications. First, brag about your hope in Jesus. Boast, take pride in your hope in Christ. Now, we're not called to be obnoxious. We don't, as Christians, strut our stuff and wear our faith on our sleeves and just simply boast continually about who we are as Christians. In fact, if we're to take Hebrews seriously, most faithful Christians limp with perseverant faith until the end, suffering day in and day out. But why can we boast in this age and in this world? We boast in our future hope, knowing that our moment of glory, the pinnacle and apex of our life, our 15 minutes of fame is always in the future. It is always to come until the new heavens and the new earth are made and we are with Christ forever. Brag about our hope in Jesus. And secondly, be confident that Jesus himself will accomplish the task. Our, our confidence is not in our accomplishments. Our confidence is not because we have a track record and a resume of faithfulness. And our, our confidence is not simply because we did something yesterday, then we will do something again tomorrow. Our confidence is that Christ was faithful, he is faithful, and he will continue to be birthing that faithfulness in us as we follow him as his disciples. Our confidence is that he will finish the task in us. And in the midst of that, we are willing to suffer whatever is necessary to walk closely with him. Brothers and sisters, Carl Willman finished the task because of God's grace in his life. He persevered to the end in his last breath. That's not a question anymore. The question is, will we and the two ways that the Bible calls us to do that, brag about our hope in Jesus, which is exactly what Carl did a year ago. 
My body is decaying, but my hope is in the Lord. And secondly, be confident that he's going to finish the work that he began in us and his faithfulness will be made manifest as we trust in him and walk forward. But some of us in our room, we, we, we can't let this go without saying, some of us don't have this confidence and don't brag in our hope in Jesus because we, we don't trust Jesus right now. We trust other things more deeply to provide us the safety and the security and, and what our soul craves. Or we are just simply despairing of the future and we want to run away and hide from the future. That's not what Jesus wants for you, brothers and sisters. He wants you to shine in glory with him forever. But that can only be accomplished in you through Christ's faithfulness in you. If you desire to have that in your life, what that means is you turn away from your sin. You turn away from trusting anything more deeply than Jesus and his faithfulness, and you embrace by faith Jesus Christ and all that of his faithfulness towards you, even to the point of his own death on your behalf, and he will empower and birth faithfulness in you. If you desire to do this for the, even the very first time, don't hesitate to speak with someone in this room who you know knows Jesus and can help you begin that relationship with him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you, we praise you, we're thankful for you. We desire for you to be at work in and through us. God, we ask that your name might be glorified not only in our church but in our individual lives. God, that we would have a clear confession as we consider Jesus, our apostle and our high priest, that we would be your people who are boldly boasting in our hope, in our confidence in you. God, we, we pray that you would just be deeply at work among us and among our people, that we would shine brightly for you. Be with us as we sing these final songs, as we move toward communion, that you would be working in us all that is necessary to display your faithfulness to this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.